most of us see the night sky every day. And yet, we don't really notice this incredible reality right in front of our eyes. We, we, we take very little notice of it in such a way that it just becomes background, doesn't it? Normally, we don't even give it a second thought. This extraordinary spatial reality is right in front of us every day, and we pay no more attention to it than we do the, the, the street signs that we pass every day on our way to work. Of course, there are times when we stop, pause, and marvel at the sparkles dotting the night sky. Maybe, maybe when you're, you're uh, away from the city lights. I remember doing this at the Moxins last year. Uh, the Moxins, they're all, they're all over. But there they are, up there. Uh, I remember doing this at the Moxins last year. Maybe when you go camping, you stop, and if you're really savvy, you can see a planet, or maybe you can notice a constellation. But even so, the, the naked eye gazing into the night sky, even on a, a very clear night, it doesn't even begin to display the grandeur of, of reality. Well, the, the Hubble telescope radically changed our view of the universe. This picture was taken as an early experiment when the Hubble telescope first launched in, I think it was 1989. What, what they did was they, they took a tiny sliver of, of, the, of outer space where it was completely dark and dreary, where they thought there's no constellations, there's nothing, we can't see anything. And what they did, they focused in on that tiny sliver speck of nothing, and they zoomed, and they zoomed, and they zoomed, and they just left the, the camera, the, the, the telescope right there, and, and later, this is the picture that they got. Each individual dot is not a star, it represents a galaxy. Each individual dot there, in, in, in what they thought was nothing, represents a solar system and a, a whole host of planets and a hundred billion or more stars. Every dot. When those first astronomers gazed for the first time at, at, the, at the footage of, uh, of the Hubble telescope, they saw a universe that was infinitely, infinitely more glorious and beautiful than they had ever realized. It was bursting with flames, and, and it had vibrant colors all around it. It was, it was mind-blowingly massive, and yet it was incredibly intricate. Of course, the night sky hadn't changed at all, had it? The bursting light, the vibrant colors, they had always been there. We just had no capacity to see it. The Hubble telescope removed the veil on the universe. Well, our story today about what they call the transfiguration of Jesus is for the disciples their Hubble telescope moment. Although the word transfigure means to, to transform, Jesus isn't really changing here as much as he is, he's revealing the true glory that he has had from before time. So just like the Hubble telescope kind of removed the veil so that we can see the reality of outer space, Jesus here in the story is removing the veil so that the inner circle of disciples can see the glory and beauty that he really, really has. Last week, Ian Jones described the book of Mark as a, as a big roller coaster of sorts. So for the first eight chapters, we're slowly ascending to the peak, and each story is showing us more and more about 
the kingship of Jesus, what, what this king looks like. And then last week, as, as, as Ian said, we reached the peak, you could say, of, of the roller coaster. Peter, the, the most frustrating of the whole lot, gets it. Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the king, that means, with absolute authority and absolute power. But Jesus quickly reminds them that the path to kingship is a path that leads to suffering and to death. And so the remaining chapters of Mark is a slow descent of Jesus towards Jerusalem, where, where, the, where the Jewish religious scribes and the Roman officials are there waiting for Jesus, plotting to kill him. And Jesus, throughout the rest of this book, is knowingly and willingly walking straight into the death trap. But, it's as if right as we're about to go down the slope of the roller coaster, Mark says, hold on, one more little peak, one more little peak of glory, the transfiguration of Jesus. One of the most famous paintings ever, now, now found in the Vatican Museum, is entitled The Transfiguration by, by a guy named Raphael. You see it on the, on the screen there. The artist depicts the transfiguration of Jesus, this story, and the story that immediately follows it in the book of Mark. And that's why it's so interesting. You see, there's a stark contrast from the top of the painting to the bottom. At the very top, it's, it's bright. Jesus is pictured on the top of a mountain, surrounded by the great prophets Elijah and Moses, and he's emanating brightness with them. And, and, the, and then just slightly lower, the, the, the inner circle of disciples are cowering in amazement and, and fear at the, at the brightness coming from Jesus. But the lower portion of the painting is set in stark contrast. It's dark. A boy possessed by a demon, surrounded by a chaotic crowd of, of disciples who are in distress and, and scribes who are taunting the disciples. Raphael captures these two scenes simultaneously. On the mountain, the glory of Christ beaming, and in the valley, dark, demonic confusion. Well, those two scenes provide the outline for our talk today. First, we encounter glory revealed in the first part of this story. And then the second, these disciples, these, these very human, very frustrating at times disciples, their understanding still is con concealed. So we have glory revealed, and then secondly, understanding concealed. Well, first, glory revealed in chapter 9, verses 2 to 8. About a week has passed since Peter's crucial declaration, you're the Christ. Now that he's grasped the identity of Jesus, it's as if Jesus is now saying, now I'll let you behold my true nature. So Jesus takes his inner disciples all alone, Peter, James, and John. That, his little inner circle of disciples, it's, it's usually Peter, James, and John takes him up a high mountain. It's probably uh, in, in the region of Caesarea Philippi, probably Mount Hermon. You can still go there today. So Jesus, alone with his disciples, is, is transfigured. 
It's the word, it, it just simply means transformed. It, it's like, it's, it's actually, we get the word metamorphosis from this word, kind of like a butterfly. It, it, the text almost makes it sound like he's some kind of transformer. Do you remember those movies, those ridiculous movies, cars and all kinds of machines transforming into some kind of apocalyptic robots where these apocalyptic battles, did that happen here? Did you guys, Transformers? Okay, good. It was a little bit weird. I'm not sure how that became a thing, but anyways, Jesus is not a Transformer, just in case you were wondering. Although Jesus appeared to his disciples in a transformed state, what actually is happening, right, is that Jesus is removing the veil of his humanity so that they see the reality of his glory and his beauty. Verse 3 tells us that his clothes became dazzling white. Mark notes, and I I can just imagine this came from Peter's memory, right? That that they were so white that they're whiter than you could, all the bleach in the world couldn't dye your clothes this white. Matthew's biography adds a little note that that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Certainly, it was awe-inspiring. It, it, almost does, it doesn't do any justice to even talk about it. I imagine you would have had to experience this. But, but then the disciples noticed something strange. It's, they came up alone with Jesus, and now it's not just Jesus. It's, there's two more blokes talking to Jesus who are also immersed in this glowing brightness. Now, now why are these two old prophets of Israel, Moses and Elijah, what are they doing here on the mountaintop? And, and, and why not other prophets like Isaiah or, or Jeremiah? They, they, they wrote much longer books in the Old Testament. Or, or why not the great leaders like, of Israel like Joshua or, or King David? There's something special about Moses and Elijah. Both Moses and Elijah experienced something that no one else in the history of Israel had ever experienced. Both Moses and Elijah experienced a, a, a mountaintop experience where God actually allowed them to glimpse, just, just glimpse the glory and beauty of God, of, of who they called Yahweh. Way back in the book of Exodus, God said to Moses, listen, listen Moses, I, I I want you to go up to this mountain because I'm, I'm going to establish a relationship with Israel. I'm going to give you the law. So go up to this mount, Mount Sinai. And, and this is what he says to him in Exodus 24, 15 to 17. You can read it on the screen with me. When Moses went up to the mountain, that's Mount Sinai, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Hundreds of years later, the prophet Elijah would have a very similar experience. It's recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah's really a hopeless figure at this point. And, and he, Israel is in absolute rebellion, and he's been telling them to stop and telling them to stop, and, and he just goes, God, they're hopeless, and he's having a little pity party for himself, and God says, I'm going I'm to give you some assurance. I want to show you something amazing. Go up into the mountain, and you're going to encounter my presence there, Elijah. My glory is going to pass by you. And then the text records that 
this shattering earthquake and, uh, and this, this wind that started shattering the rocks and, and this fire became beaming and blazing there on the mountain. Okay, okay, so here, here we are, hundreds of years after those events, and now we have Peter, James, and John on a mountain, and they're staring at the two great prophets of Israel who had at one time caught a glimpse of God's glory. Now they're on the mountain, entirely enveloped in the glorious presence of God. But, but there's a difference. You see, in the Old Testament, Elijah and Moses, they had to be shielded. They had to be shielded from God's glory because it's, it's so gloriously radiant, but it, in some ways it's mysteriously dangerous as well. Do you remember reading in the book of Isaiah when these, these kind of apocalyptic-looking angel cherubim creatures are flying over the, the throne and they're, they're crying out, holy, 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 and they have an extra pair of wings just to shield their face from the glory of God. It's like the sun, I think. I mean, it's just an analogy, right? But, but it would, how awe-inspiring would it be to be in close proximity to, to the sun? And see the scor- and feel the scorching heat, and see, you know, scorching plasma erupting the size of whole planets. That would be awe-inspiring, and yet you would be eviscerated by it, wouldn't you? You see, the distance from the sun, the the, the atmosphere shields us from its danger. It's glorious and it's dangerous at the same time. But unlike. Elijah and Moses, Jesus doesn't need to be shielded from God's glory on the mountain. Why? Because God's glory is actually emanating from him. Why? Because he actually shares God's glory. What his point is, is Jesus is God's glory. There's something else that God's going to reveal about Jesus on the mountain, and it's actually teed up for us quite nicely here by Peter. Peter is overwhelmed by the scene. Of course he is. So he, he thinks to himself, let's set, up, let's set up three shelters. Boom, boom, boom. Jesus, Elijah, Moses. And the word shelters here is the word that was used for tabernacles, these tents they used in the Old Testament. What's going on in Peter's mind is, here we have three dignified characters and let's honor them with, with these, these special tabernacles. And in one sense, he's quite right because the Old Testament tells us that one of the signs that God's kingdom has finally arrived here is that Elijah and Moses will return. So it's, it's, he's, he's clicking along. He's probably waiting for Jesus to pat him on the back and say, you got it. Peter rightly realizes that this is a momentous occasion. I I get this sense that Peter's just one of those guys that when something really important is happening, he's just thinking, we've got to do something. He can't wait. He's just got to jump the gun. He can't wait to see what God's going to do. He just can't be patient. I I love the little side comment we get from Mark in in verse 5. Peter just didn't know what to say because he was so afraid. You get this sense that Peter goes, I have no idea what to say, but someone's got to say something, right? 
No, no, we don't need three little tabernacles for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Because God, God is going to set up his own tabernacle. Right here. Verse 7. A cloud descends upon the mountaintop, and it completely envelops them. Now, this might seem like an odd detail, or at least an inconsequential detail, but it's not. Remember, we just read from Exodus. It was a cloud of God's presence that overshadowed Moses on Mount Sinai. Later, when when Israel went into the wilderness, waiting to go into the promised land, what what they did was they set up these little, they set set up a tabernacle. It's like a fancy tent. But they set up this tabernacle because it was a place where they would meet with their God. And how did they know that God was in the tent? Well, a cloud would fill the innermost section of the tabernacle. After many years, Israel entered into the promised land. And King Solomon finished the great and grand temple, the the place where God would meet with his people. And at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, guess what happened? The cloud of God's presence filled the innermost sanctum of the temple. And much later, after Israel had rebelled against God, the prophet Ezekiel tells us that the cloud of God's presence, it left the temple. And it never returned. God had left Israel gone until right here the the enveloping cloud is is a declaration to the disciples god's presence is located here not in a mountain but in jesus he's the true temple he's the true meeting place between god and man if you want to see where god and man can meet it's jesus not the temple Well, the story reaches its climax when God speaks from the midst of the cloud. This is my son whom I love. I think to Jesus, it's a word of affirmation. You're my son. You you are the object of my approval and the object of my love. You're the king. you, You, Jesus, you are the one with rightful authority and power. (coughs) Why, why would Jesus need affirmation? Because the road to kingship is suffering and death. The path to glory will require the Father to turn the back, his back on the Son whom he loves. The road to kingship will require him to execute his Son. And so on the road to execution, he's saying, I love you. Keep to the path. I love you. And friends, if he says that to his son, all you who have put your faith in him, you may be going through suffering. You, you may be in an uncertain path. 
But if he was willing to turn his back on the son he loved for you, he says that to you too. I love you. To the disciples, I think this is a word of assurance. This is my son whom I love. Listen, listen to him. The disciples are tricky figures, aren't they? They're very human figures. And on the one hand, they recognize Jesus. You're the Christ. Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. But they just don't understand the path. Why must you suffer? Why must we suffer? We thought following, following you would make us the winners. So God assures them, listen, listen to him, which of course means obey him, follow him. It means, it means submit your life to him. Even when, the, even when the path gets very dark, and it will get dark for them. There's a simple application here, isn't there? If you want to follow Jesus, you have to listen to him. Throughout this book, Mark, Mark shows us in nearly every story that, that Jesus, what he's doing in Mark, he's showing us that Jesus is the king with unrivaled authority and absolute power. Okay, and if that's the case, if that is the case, then when he speaks, you either listen to him and you live, or you ignore him and you die. It's, a, it's a very stark, isn't it? If you're a Christian here today, let this be a word of assurance to you as well. You know, we kind of had to skip over it last week. It was at the very tail end of, of Ian's talk. But the, the path of following Jesus often calls us to bear, bear up our own cross. Following Jesus is no kind of pipe dream. It, it requires suffering, sometimes death, losing social credibility. Sometimes it means rejection by the world. I mean, just a week earlier, Jesus was telling his disciples, hey, what, what good is it for you if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your, whole, your, your soul in the meantime? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, I, I too will be ashamed of you. He's saying that the path forward is not easy, but let me assure you, listen to him, listen to my son. Point number two. We had glory revealed, point number one, and the rest of this story, it's understanding concealed. That The disciples, their understanding is just, they're just such weak figures. They don't get it. It's concealed. You would think as Jesus shows more and more of himself that their, their knowledge and, and understanding and grasping would, would be growing, but it just seems to be out of sync. The cloud departs. Elijah and Moses disappear. Jesus and his disciples are now making their way down the mountain. <coughs> the, the brightness and glory of the mountaintop give way now into darkness and demonic activity and confusion at the foot of the mountain. And actually, the confusion begins on the way down the mountain. Peter, James, and John are discussing amongst each other, what does Jesus mean by this rising from the dead business? I think they must be thinking he's speaking in parables to them. They just, 
Last week, he made a big point about Jesus was speaking plainly and boldly to them, but they're, they're not getting that at this point. They just cannot come to grips with a dying Messiah. Well, their confusion on the way down the mountain foreshadows the absolute chaos and confusion at the foot of the mountain. They finally reach the other disciples, only to find them in a heated argument with, with the, the, the religious Pharisees or the religious scribes. You see, a father has brought his, his suffering son. This boy had been uh, possessed by a demon and had become some, some sort of kind of epileptic condition. But the disciples, they, they couldn't expel the demon. Jesus had expelled demons. In fact, Mark tells us that the disciples, along with Jesus, had, had been doing the exact same thing. But, but this one was particularly tricky for some reason. I'm not exactly sure. They couldn't expel the demon. The boy was still possessed and he was still suffering. And, and now I think the father is doubtful. I think the father is doubtful that there's any power in these disciples. Maybe he's starting to doubt this whole Jesus movement. And the Jewish scribes, of course, they're loving this, right? They're gloating. They're to, you know, they're gloating. These disciples, they're frauds. This Jesus, he's a fraud. It's chaos when they get down there. Well, Jesus rebukes the disciples. You faithless generation. You see, the reason, of course, that the disciples couldn't expel this demon was because they were trying to do it without prayer. Verse 29. That's how, that's how the story ends. That is, they were, treating, they were treating the power to heal as a bit, of, a bit of kind of magic that they could conjure up within themselves. You see, they never had really any power in themselves to do any of these healings. It was always the power of Christ. It was always their proximity in terms of their faith and trust in Christ to heal. But the really important lesson here I think is found in Jesus' interaction with this boy's father. Jesus has the boy brought to him. The father speaks up. Verse 22, you can read it with me. The demonic spirit has often, the demonic spirit has often thrown him into the fire or in the water to kill him. But if, if you can do anything, take pity on us. Help us. Jesus picks up on three words that the Father says. If you can, Ian read it brilliantly. He, he did that when he read it. Thank you, Ian. If you can, responds Jesus with a touch of sarcasm. If you can, you see there's lingering doubt in the Father. He, he's probably thinking maybe the Jewish scribes were right. After all, the disciples couldn't heal him. Maybe this, maybe... Maybe this Jesus and this Jesus movement is all fraudulent. And Jesus is saying to him, listen, the healing of your son does not depend on my ability to heal. We've read the last eight chapters. That My ability is proven. My power is absolutely proven. The question is, Father, will you be faithless like my disciples 
Or will you trust that I have the authority and the power to heal your son? And your answer to that question is how, is, determines whether your son will be healed. Healed. The father responds with one of the sweetest declarations of faith in all of the Bible. I do believe. Help overcome my unbelief. Jesus heals and restores his son right there. Essentially, every story in the gospel, in the gospel accounts is about two things. You can basically whittle down every story to, to two things. Showing us who, who Jesus truly is and showing us how we must respond to Jesus. That's what it all boils down to. A lot of the talks are probably going to sound the same because of that. And that's certainly the case here. When the Father says, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief, he's saying, listen, I, I do believe Jesus, but, but my belief is so muddled in with my doubts. It's all muddled together. So, so help, me, help me to believe. Mark is showing us what a genuine faith response looks like here. On the one hand, it's an authentic recognition that my pitiful faith never corresponds to Jesus' ability to save. Jesus is infinitely more powerful to save than I am faithful. That's the first recognition of true faith. But two, it's, it's, also, it's, it's an authentic recognition that my faith is mixed in with all this kinds of sin and, and doubt. It, it's a muddled up, oh, I, even my best of faith is a muddled mixture of faith and doubt. And in this life, I think, I think it will always be something like that. I don't say that to discourage you. <laughs> Friends, this story tells us something about the true nature of saving faith. Faith is not the absence of all doubts. Let's just get that across real quick. Faith is not the absence of all doubts. It's an enduring commitment to Jesus in the midst of the doubts. Doubts will creep up. Doubts will creep up because you're limited. You're, uh, we're human. Doubts will creep up because but we're sinful. We, we talked last week about how sin blinds us to the truth. Doubts will cre creep up because our, our faith has not yet turned to sight, has it? Doubts will creep up because we live and work in, in a world where, where people, our colleagues and our friends, don't share the faith. In fact, they think we're foolish because of our faith. Tragedies, tragedies will come and shake your faith. Maybe it's the, it's the fatal diagnosis. Maybe, maybe it's watching a child slip into eternity as a parent. Friends, maybe it's a persistent sin struggle that shakes your faith. I, if I really had Jesus in me, how could I continue to struggle with this? I thought that. Maybe your faith is shaken when, when life seems to reward those who cheat and pursue power at the expense of others while you seem to be losing out because you're honest and humble. 
And the world of the Bible seems to be backwards. Maybe it's a philosophical question that shakes your faith. What is almost certain on this side of heaven is that your faith will be shaken. You can almost count on it. Your doubts and your faith will be this jumbled up mixture. And the story is holding up the Father's response as a true model of faith and faithfulness. It's what I call flag down, arms out. What do I mean by that? Faith is a settled commitment of the heart in the midst of doubts. It's, I'm, I'm sticking my flag here with Jesus, even though I don't have the answer to every, one of, every question. Even though, like the disciples, my understanding is still very flawed, and it will always be, and, and everyone's understanding of the world is incredibly flawed, isn't it? But it's saying, in light of that, I'm, I'm sticking my flag with Jesus because I trust, I trust Jesus. It's a settled commitment of the heart. But it's also arms extended. True faith is a plea for help, isn't it? Flag downs, arms out. I need your, I need your help to keep on trusting. I do not have the capacity to continue trusting on my own. I do believe. Help overcome my unbelief. The painting of the transfiguration, you see this here. The artist took a little bit artistic license here because there's chaos and confusion down below in this scene, but there's one disciple looking at the boy and pointing to Jesus. It's the artist's way of saying, there's the solution. There's the solution to your problem For the Father, faith became sight like that immediately. His son was healed right there before his eyes. (coughs) But interestingly enough, for the first readers of Mark, probably the church in Rome, and for us, faith does not become sight immediately, does it? Faith becomes sight at death. And that means we have to continue fixing our eyes on Jesus on the road to death. That means we we need to remind ourselves of these stories about Jesus' glory and his conquering power, the transfiguration. He's the glorious king who went to a cross to save me from my sin so that I could be made gloriously new. We need to remind ourselves of these stories. I think this is why some of the disciples got to experience the transfiguration of of Jesus and all his glory on, on that mountaintop. I think that's why it's recorded for us. Because the road from faith to sight is long and it's slow. So it's it's a word of assurance that road will descend into some very dark valleys for his disciples. And it will descend into dark valleys for us too if we're faithful to Christ. 
So it's, it's just his way of saying, let me remove for, for a moment, let me remove the veil on Jesus. See his glory. See his majesty. See his brilliant beauty. Listen. Listen to him. That's our word. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, I confess for myself, um, it's easy to preach about faith that's muddled up with doubts when you've had plenty of your own, and I have. But we all have. We all are that, Father. Help us in the midst of this chaotic seeming life with, with doubts all around us and, and confusing elements to, to life and we're, we're trying to make sense of it all. Help us to see the beauty of Christ and to see the beauty of the cross and what you've done for us and help us to plant the flag in the ground. I'm with Jesus. And then in the next motion, help us, Lord. Help us extend our arms out to you and, and cry out, help me. Overcome my unbelief. Lord, will you make this church into a bunch of very humble people because they don't have the capacity for faithfulness and yet a bunch of confident people because in Jesus, we stand next to the one whom you say, this is my son whom I love. Help us listen to him. In Jesus' name, amen.